When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello and welcome to episode 153 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today we look at missed opportunities and return to a recurring theme on this podcast. And in life, I guess which is how people look and the image they portray are really an accurate representation of who they really are, or the horror that they are capable of inflicting on others. I'm delighted that the show this week is sponsored by Stitch Fix. Have you tried it yet? Those of you who have met me will know just how stylish I am. Okay, maybe not then, but I am now due to Stitch Fix. As you know, finding the perfect item of clothing can feel great, but shopping for it is anything other than delightful. I don't want to be trawling the shops on a Saturday afternoon when I could be surfing, playing with my dogs or watching the Mighty Leeds United. And sizing on websites, well, a bit hit and miss, aren't they? This is where the online service from Stitch Fix really helped me. After filling in a quick questionnaire about my personal style, size and wants, a personal stylist sent to my door five items of clothing each handpicked for me from a selection of a hundred of the best European brands, including established names, cool emerging designers and exclusive brands. It's a brilliant opportunity to discover new clothing I probably wouldn't have found on my own. I loved the choices and kept each item, but if I hadn't, I'd just have sent it back free of charge. Just so easy and low risk. What isn't there to like? The awesome news is that Stitch Fix have a special offer for listeners to this podcast. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support my podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash true right now. That's stitchfix.co.uk forward slash true. As always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon. I hope you've enjoyed this week's birthday video with me looking like I've been on the run for a month, with my lovely dogs though. But a special thank you to the new members of this special club, who are Drew McKee, Ian Vogler, Pam Kitchens, and Nick D. Thank you so much for your support, it's much appreciated. Let's briefly set some context for today's story by taking a quick look at the music we were listening to on the 1st of January 2005. Top of the UK charts was Band-Aid 20 with Do They Know It's Christmas, to be replaced a week later by the number two signal by legend Steve Brookenstein from X Factor with Against All Odds. It was a good year for retro game characters with Mario topping the US singles chart with Let Me Love You. And the top selling album in Australia in 2005 was Missy Higgins with The Sound of White. In the news this month, Condoleezza Rice was sworn in as US Secretary of State, the first African-American woman to hold the post. Tony Blair, now the longest-serving Labour Prime Minister, marked 2,838 days as British Prime Minister. A stampede at the Manda Devi Temple in Mandra Devi in India killed at least 258 people. 
and Sir Mark Thatcher was fined around £265,000 and received a four-year suspended jail sentence after pleading guilty to supplying equipment to mercenaries for an attempted coup in Equatorial Guinea. If you aren't too familiar with this amazing story, I suggest you take a look. And in UK true crime news, hoaxer Christopher Pearson, who sent emails to relatives of innocent people missing from the recent Indian Ocean tsunami from an AOL account purporting to be from the Foreign Office and claiming to confirm that the relatives were dead, is jailed for six months. Just what was he thinking? Today's story is from Cambridge, a university city around 50 miles north of London, with car parks more expensive than central London. Take my advice and get the train. At the 2011 census, its population was 123,000, including almost 24,500 students. Although living through a nightmare where they feared the worst, in South End, 22-year-old Sally Gleason's parents, her two sisters and her friends and family, hoped for the best. They had to. Identical twin Sally had been studying forensic science at Anglia Ruskin University's Cambridge campus, and on New Year's Eve in 2004, had been out with friends at popular bar The Avery. Closed now, it was the sort of roomy venue popular with students and for watching big sporting events in the city. As well as the friends she'd gone out with to the party, Sally knew the staff who worked at the bar. It was a place she liked and where she felt very relaxed and comfortable. But Sally hadn't been seen since the party. When her housemates in Cambridge realised she hadn't come home, and she also hadn't made it to her job at the travel lodge in Cambridge the next day, they called her parents to see if she was there, but she wasn't. When her family and friends tried to call Sally, there was no response from her mobile. This was totally out of character for Sally Gleason. Sally was last seen outside the Avery pub at about 1am, heading towards a chip shop with a friend. A fight broke out nearby. Just some drunken idiots scrapping over nothing much at all. And Sally's friend intervened to break up the ruck. When he was finished policing the children, Sally's friend looked, but he couldn't see her anywhere. He went back to the pub to search for her and was told by a bouncer that she'd re-entered the premises, so he left for home. No doubt, like me, you've had many similar situations at the end of a night out and there was no cause for concern. Ten hours later, a series of texts arrived which had been sent by Sally not long after midnight, but with the phone networks overloaded, had only just come through as lunchtime approached on New Year's Day. Her first text at 0136 was received by a friend and read, Hey Em, please come find me because everyone has gone. A second text sent at 1.40am to housemate Janet O'Dee said, No one waited for me. I've got into a car with someone, please call me. And a third text sent to the first friend, two minutes later at 0142, said simply, Please help me. Sally was intelligent, beautiful, friendly and sociable. Whose car had she got in? Was it someone she knew or a stranger? And whoever's car it was, it was clear from the texts that very quickly Sally knew she was in a whole world of trouble. As the hours turned into days and there was still no sign of Sally, the police were under increasing pressure to find her and Cambridge was inundated with appeals 
for people who may have seen her. There were posters, press conferences and high-profile appeals for information via the TV and radio. Sally was described as 5 foot 2 inches tall, of fair complexion and with distinctive curly ginger hair. When last seen she was wearing glasses, a short brown dress, brown high heels and carrying a denim bag. But nothing. It was a classic situation of crowds of people out celebrating and nobody appeared to have seen anything. But with so many potential witnesses, detectives were convinced that somebody must have seen something even if they were not aware of its significance. Sally's twin sister, Julie, returned to the Avery pub dressed in similar clothing to Sally to see if this helped jog the memories of the revellers. But still no witnesses came forward. This was an incredibly tough thing for Julie to do, but she'd have done anything to help find her sister. Having described just how this time with no news felt, she said, I just feel sick, like your stomach is hollow and your mind plays tricks on you. You try to stay positive because it's the best thing to do for everyone, but you can't help thinking the worst. And then on the 8th of January, it was the news everyone had been dreading. There would be no happy ending, as police officers confirmed that they were no longer searching for a missing person. It had now become a murder inquiry. Sally's body had been found at 4pm the day before in woodland that borders two sides of the American military cemetery at Maddingley, about three miles and a 15-minute drive from Cambridge city centre. Sally was discovered by a walker, naked, and it was soon established that she'd been raped and strangled. Sally Geeson was just 22 years old when she met her terrible, violent death. Following this discovery, Sally's family issued a statement. Our beautiful daughter has been taken from us, and words cannot begin to express our heartache at this time. Sally was a wonderful and loving daughter, sister and friend, and we are simply devastated. Her dad left a bouquet of white daisies close to the spot where her body was discovered. He told reporters at the scene, I just felt I had to come and do this. And he wasn't alone as a stream of people arrived at the spot to leave their own tributes to the memory of Sally. Sally's mum left a single red rose with a card which read, To my darling Sally, I would cherish every moment we spent together. My love always, mum. And her sister Julie's card on her bouquet read, Always have and always will be in my heart and right by my side forever, Sally. Love, Juicy Woozy. Although the information hadn't been released to the public, by the time that detectives had revealed that Sally had been found, they were also certain that they knew who had killed her, and detectives from Cambridge were in Glasgow, Scotland, looking for him. A few days before, detectives had received a call from the British Army, following their concerns about one of their own staff, 31-year-old Lance Corporal David Atkinson, who was based at Waterbeach Barracks, just a few miles up the A10 from Cambridge. He liked a few drinks and was a regular drinker in pubs around the Avery, and would often pop into the newsagent 20 yards from the Avery entrance with a friend to buy cigarettes, boasting to the staff about how he was going out to get off his face on booze. Army bosses were concerned due to his background, which we'll come on to, and also due to the fact that in the early hours of New Year's Day, he'd set light to his room 
at the barracks before leaving the site and had since been AWOL. A car believed to be his was seen driving erratically close to Glasgow on New Year's Day and detectives believed that he was here in the city, which he was. He had been in Glasgow since the day of the murder. On the sixth floor of an anonymous city hotel, in room 616 of his £35 a night hotel room at the Chorus Hotel. His days had been spent drinking, watching porn and sleeping, but by January the 10th, detectives were closing in, and the daily record describes his movements that evening, where he'd been walking Glasgow's red light district, approaching sex workers with bright auburn hair, the same as Sally Gleason's. Let me quote briefly directly from the article. Donna from Paisley had been on the street for hours. She wouldn't mind an hour or two in a hotel out of the cold and the £50 fee would make the night worthwhile. In the Chorus Hotel on Argyle Street, they sat in Atkinson's room, drinking, talking and having sex. You remind me of someone I've been with recently, he said at one point. Donna was tired but not too tired to pay attention. What I saw in that man's eyes scared me, she would later recall. His eyes were dead. He went on and on about the colour of her hair, but she didn't take it as a compliment. Even as they had sex, Atkinson kept staring out of the window, as if he was watching out for what was going on. He was fit and strong, Donna could see that. If he'd wanted to, he could have throttled me in seconds, she recalled. Her work done and the £50 securely in her purse, Donna wasted no time in taking her leave at around 2am. End of quote. When Donna had gone, Atkinson went to buy more drinks from the hotel bar, getting ever more drunk, and between visits to the bar, he sat in his room watching porn. As his condition deteriorated, the bar staff refused to let him buy any more alcohol, so he started to go through the contents of the minibar in his room. Meanwhile, just spitting distance away in another hotel, were detectives from Cambridge looking for Atkinson. Devastated by the news that day that Sally's body had been found, they were now fast asleep, ready for a busy day tomorrow, tracking down her killer. They were sure he was in Glasgow, and it was now just a matter of finding him and bringing him to justice. Breaking briefly from porn to flick through the channels, Atkinson was just about able to focus on the TV screen as a news update came through from England revealing that detectives in Cambridge had found and identified the body of Sally Gleason. He knew the game was up and that it was just a matter of time before he was held accountable for his actions. As the clock ticked towards 4.30am, Atkinson unscrewed the lid of a jerry can he had with him which was holding five litres of unleaded petrol. Fully aware of what he needed to do, he soaked himself in this fuel and then reached for his matches. The noise of the match striking was closely followed by a more ferocious noise as he set fire to himself. Atkinson then jumped through the open window of his sixth floor room and fell to his death on the street 100 feet below. Some heard the sickening thud as he hit the ground. Others thought the fireball they saw was a gas leak or explosion. The emergency services were soon on the scene at James Watt Street, just a few hundred yards from Glasgow Central Railway Station, where they pronounced 31-year-old David Atkinson dead. 
Officers who went to his room found a handwritten note addressed to his ex-wife saying, I have done something evil again. I have killed a woman with my bare hands. Forensic evidence of his somewhat run-down H-registered silver Range Rover showed conclusively that Sally had indeed been in the car. But why? Still nobody came forward to say that they had seen the car near the pub in the early hours of the new year. But detectives suspected that as her friends had gone home, Sally had been looking for a cab and Atkinson picked her up by posing as a taxi driver. And there was nothing about the clean-cut and well-spoken Atkinson to reveal the monster that he really was. And as we go back now to look in more detail at Atkinson, he was undoubtedly a monster who'd attacked many times before and possibly even killed before he took the life of Sally Gleason. Born in East Kilbride, a working-class suburb on the outskirts of Glasgow, it was a relatively tough place for Atkinson to grow up, but he was sporty and showed no signs of what he was to become at an early age. Karate was his first major interest, and he was a black belt by the time he was 13. The Guardian newspaper tracked down his karate coaches, who recall a lovely boy who even when his parents split when he was in his teens, didn't appear to suffer. He worked hard and was a popular member of the karate group. One resident who lived near him growing up said, People knew David as Wee Aki because he was really small for his age. He didn't like to hang around in gangs and he was dedicated to karate. It's tragic for the family because they are good people. The karate coach thinks that Atkinson must have changed due to some incidents that happened when he entered the army in 1992 because when he did so he had no criminal record and he had no reputation at all for sexual violence. Two years after joining the army, Atkinson was posted to Germany where he met and married a 27-year-old German lady called Leanne Hucker in Mönchengladbach. This was 1995 and they had a daughter in 1996 called Eleanor. But by 1996, Leanne was having a terrible time and made complaints to army bosses of domestic violence. And she did so again the following year, but no action was taken, and Leanne later withdrew them after the pair separated, and Atkinson was not prosecuted for these offences. Whilst in Germany in 1997, he was convicted of attacking an 18-year-old Polish girl. He was found guilty of false imprisonment and fined £1,000. For this, he served eight months in the military prison in Colchester, which is no picnic, but the army didn't sack him, as he was cleared of the more serious charges of kidnap and indecent assault. And it was at this time that some of his colleagues came forward to say that when stationed in Germany, Atkinson had tried to persuade them to abduct a blonde woman from a disco in Germany and then rape her in a car. He was also gaining a reputation as a heavy drinker, a womaniser and a loose cannon. He also picked up a conviction for animal cruelty, for throwing bricks at a swan. There were so many incidents in the years between Germany and when he murdered Sally. The Daily Mail newspaper tracked down a former girlfriend of Atkinson. He told how he lured her into his car and tried to rape her after they split up. It was after they had broken up one night she spotted him waiting for her in his car when she left the nightclub. She said, It gives me chills just thinking of him sitting there, knowing what I know now about him. 
He offered to drive me home but parked up and tried to kiss me. I told him no, stop. Billy pushed back my seat and pounced on top of me. I tried to open the door but he locked it. I was terrified. She said that Atkinson eventually gave up, adding, I'm lucky to be alive. I could have been the one he killed. And there was another incident in North Ripon, Yorkshire, when Atkinson was beaten up for sexually assaulting a 17-year-old girl. He was attacked by three of her friends after he brazenly taunted them over his actions, arrogantly saying, so what are you going to do about it? He soon found out. The three attackers were jailed for assault in 2001, but Atkinson, he was never charged for the sexual attack. And just 18 months before he killed Sally, Atkinson attempted to abduct another woman in Chatham, Kent, close to the barracks where he was then based. Kent police were informed of the attack in May 2003 and contacted the army. However, once more, the complaint was later withdrawn. And Detective Superintendent Swain, who led the investigation into Sally's disappearance, said he was 90% certain that Atkinson tried to abduct another woman in Cambridge just months before the murder. He drove the woman to a car park and parked so she was unable to open the door, but she managed to talk him round and persuaded him to let her go. If she had reacted differently, then she could have been his first murder, said the detective. This woman was one of many who came forward after the publicity surrounding Sally's murder. If you take some time to read the reports and forums online where Atkinson's name is discussed among his peers, he was known as having issues with women. Worryingly, especially his army colleagues, although shocked that he was capable of murder, they don't appear to be particularly surprised. Atkinson had openly bragged of attempts to get women into his car to assault them, and many of the men on camp warned their wives to steer clear of this man known for his womanising. He was known as a big physical unit who spent a lot of time in the gym and abused steroids, as well as drinking heavily. Just how many more had he attacked? So what do you make of what we've heard today? Once more, we are talking about a story where Sally felt safe and secure in a place familiar to her, surrounded by lots of people, unaware of the potential danger caused by just one person. I hate to think of that moment when she was in the car and it dawned on her that she was in a terribly dangerous situation. The utter terror she must have felt as events unfolded. And this all happened on just another night out that she'd been looking forward to. Before Sally's body was found, her sister Julie recalled her last conversation with her sister several days before she disappeared. She said, That was Wednesday when mum took her back to Cambridge to take her shopping in town. She went to get her outfit for New Year and she rang me because she was excited about what she bought. I really don't know how her close family and friends are able to cope with what has happened with someone so special to them, do you? But we can only wish them well and hope that they are able to still gain some joy from their lives and remember the great times that they spent with Sally. And as for Atkinson, well, a lot of what we've spoken about today shows that he was, frankly, lucky not to have been brought to justice much earlier. The crimes were all there, just those we know about. There are also arguably questions about how the army managed someone 
with such clear issues around women. But all of this just makes it worse for Sally's family, as they must feel that Atkinson should not have been free and able to abduct their precious Sally in the early hours of New Year's Day in 2005. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head over to the Facebook group where you'll be made very, very welcome. And to support the show, keep the lights on, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime to find 36 full-length bonus episodes, my latest video and other exclusive content. All for a couple of quid a month or less. So that is all from me for today. I'm off to get ready to celebrate 100 years of the Mighty Leeds United in our upcoming game with Birmingham at the Theatre of Nightmares on Saturday. Until then, as has been shown to me in this last week when I was totally unaware of the situation being faced by someone at work who I just thought really was a total arse, be kind always, and of course, stay classy. Speak to you next week.